1: Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. We continue our live coverage of the historical day of a former president being arrested and arraigned. This afternoon, Donald Trump faced 34 felony counts for falsifying business records in connection with the hush money payment to adult film star Stormy Daniels. Hours later, an aggrieved Donald Trump appeared in front of a very friendly MAGA outfitted crowd at Mar-a-Lago.
2: I never thought anything like this could happen in America, never thought it could happen. The only crime that I have committed is to fearlessly defend our nation from those who seek to destroy it.
1: From there, he went on to spout his usual litany of lies and grievances. But that was the only part of today that was familiar. Everything else we've never before seen. A former U.S. president under arrest and walking into a courtroom, sitting with his defense team, having to answer to charges just as any other criminal defendant would. So now that we know what's in the indictment, is this a weak or a strong case? We have two attorneys with very different positions here in a moment. But let's begin with CNN's Kristen Holmes. She's live for us in Palm Beach. Kristen, tell us what happened tonight.
3: Let's So after he got back, he came into this room. And as you said, it was full of supporters. He could talk about allies, his family members, lawmakers who support him, uh, even members of Bikers for Trump club. And he gave a very uncharacteristically short speech. We're talking about roughly 25 minutes. And it was an airing of grievances. He did talk about the New York case, but he also talked about all of the other federal and state investigations into him, uh, spending more time on some of those than the case in New York. Now, when he did pivot to that New York case, he went after the judge again. He attacked the district attorney. And that was actually one of the lines that got the most applause of the night. And he also said this.
2: As it turns out, virtually everybody that has looked at this case, including rhinos and even hardcore Democrats, say there is no crime and that it should never have been brought. Never have been brought. Everybody. Even people that aren't big fans have said it. They said this is not the right thing to do. It's an insult to our country as the world is already laughing at us.
3: And I will note that I talked to several people close to him who said that he was very upset uh, after today, but that he was in an uplifted mood after he saw some of the coverage. He really does believe what his lawyers are telling him, that this is a weak case. And Allison, I want to show you some video, because this is what happened just moments after the speech. This is on the patio of his Mar-a-Lago club. He went up to have dinner, uh, and while he was eating dinner, the song that he recorded with the January 6th choir, that is men who are incarcerated uh, for their alleged actions on January 6th, he recorded the Pledge of Allegiance for that, uh, came on, and he stood up, and as all of the club members and listened to the entire song. Um, now, I am told that he is DJing up on the patio. He is with his biggest admirers. And that's what you really take away from that video there. Every single person was standing up when he stood up. And the other takeaway there is that these are core beliefs. They're not just core beliefs of the former president, but also of his base. He is playing that song uh, that he recorded with this January 6th choir in a private setting where there are no cameras. This is not just for a show. Uh, but I did talk to one source tonight who was close with the former president who said that he is concerned that the president, the former president, has created an echo chamber uh, and that could hurt him politically in the long run.
1: OK, and Kristen, also um, Donald Trump brought up the classified documents that he was keeping at Mar-a-Lago. So what did he say about that?
3: Yeah, he really talked about that more than anything else. Uh, It was clear that that is bothering him, that that is something that's under his skin. And and we have heard from many legal experts who believe that's actually the most solid investigation into him. One of the things I found the most interesting that he said was when he started talking about how people were being squeezed essentially by the Department of Justice, they were trying to get people to flip on the former president. That is something that we know uh, that that the special counsel, Jack Smith, has been putting an aggressive amount of pressure on certain witnesses. And it's clear now uh, that the former president knows about that and that there is a level of concern there. But it was interesting to see how much more time he spent on what he called the documents hoax than on any other investigation. And again, we are at a place where we have started to see movement in that case where many legal legal experts believe that it is uh, coming to a head.
1: Okay, Kristen Holmes, thank you very much for the reporting. Here with me tonight, we have CNN political commentator, Karen Finney, Watergate prosecutor, Nick Ackerman, founder of Mo News, Moshe Wanunu, host of Conversations with Coleman podcast, Coleman Hughes, and also joining us, attorney John Sale, who turned down an offer to join the Trump legal team on the Mar-a-Lago documents case. Guys, great to have all of you here tonight with us to figure out what happened today and what we saw. Uh, Nick, let me start with you. Sure. Now that you have seen the indictment, is it a strong or weak Case. It
4: looks to me like a very strong case. How
1: so? so? In
4: the fact that it goes through, you've got two witnesses. You've got Michael Cohen and you've got David Pecker at a minimum. Uh, you've got lots of documents. You've got them corroborated by those documents. You've got a tape that is referenced in there. You've got activity at the end where they basically take it right out of the Mueller report to show that there was a major effort to try and keep uh, Michael Cohen in the camp and to keep tabs on him to make sure that he wouldn't cooperate. The entire case is really almost like a bookend to the other two investigations, one going on in Atlanta and the other by Jack Smith with respect to the insurrection and the attempt to undermine the election. What you really have in this case is Donald Trump trying to cheat his way into the election by fraudulently failing to omit from the public Very important facts about his life that would bear directly on his chances for election in 2016 after the Access Hollywood tape came out when the Republicans were actually thinking of dumping him from the ticket. And so there you have him paying off. Uh, a um, individual who is a doorman at a building who presumably had information about some child he had out of wedlock. You have another instance with a woman who is a Playboy playmate, Karen McDougall, that he they were paying $150,000 to. Yep. And then, of course, there was Stormy Daniels that they paid one hundred and thirty two dollars to. And all of this was phonied up to make it look like it was really legitimate uh, funds for a lawyer's fee. Okay. So what it was was really a fraud on the public because they went into the voting booth not knowing any of this. Okay. And then you go to the other end of the extreme. When he tried to keep power to himself, he made up another big lie, which was that there was election fraud. And he used that to perpetrate... Other kinds of crimes. Yes, but that's
1: not in this. Here. It's not in this. Right. But
4: but when you look at it and you ask, is this serious? Damn, tootin' it's serious. Okay. Because it shows what he did in the beginning and it shows what he did in
1: the end. It shows what he did to gain power and what he did to keep power. Let me bring in our other attorney, John Sale. John, do you agree?
5: Uh, I don't, and it's good <laughs> to be on with my friend and former colleague Nick. We were. I was also a Watergate prosecutor. So Nick uh, and everybody else, I disagree. I think the case is weak legally and factually. Uh, Well, let me say before I go on, I think this is a very sad day for the country. I think it was a sad day for the presidency. Uh, The whole world is watching. And, uh, Nick, I think you may recall that when President Nixon resigned, we were reminded in our office we shouldn't be celebrating, that it was a tragedy. So I think this was just unfortunate. But getting back to the question at hand, I think legally, uh, the elevating this to a felony is I'm not going to say it's incorrect, but I think it's untested. And I think it's more of a federal case. And our Nick and my former office where we worked, the Southern District of New York U.S. Attorney's Office, they took a pass on this. And it was not uh, the Bar Justice Department which did, but then the Biden Justice Department, the U.S. Attorney, also took a look at it, and they also decided, for whatever reason, it was not appropriate to go on and to prosecute. And I, one other thing in terms of my offer to join the Trump legal team And I've been asked if I have any regrets. And until the last couple of days, my answer was absolutely not. And I still don't have any, except as a trial lawyer, I would just love to cross-examine Michael Cohen every time he goes on TV. Uh, Nick, I would ask Nick or anyone else, if you ever had a cooperator when you were a prosecutor who goes on every possible TV show and talks and talks and talks and gives you more fodder to cross-examine. If you can create reasonable doubt with one juror, that Michael Cohen's not telling the truth, I don't care how much so-called corroboration you have. That's a not guilty verdict. Mm. He's walking reasonably
1: around. Well, it's interesting that you say that because the judge today talked about how everybody basically needs to quiet down. But that was because of, you know, creating civil unrest and of threats. But we'll get to that in a moment. But first, to your question of why the other um, other prosecutors passed on it. Um, Alvin Bragg talked about that today. So here's what he said is different about his case than his predecessors.
6: The scheme violated New York election law, which makes it a crime to conspire to promote a candidacy by unlawful means. The $130,000 wire payment exceeded the federal campaign contribution cap. And the false statements in AMI's books violated New York law.
1: Let me play one more thing, because the one that I wanted was um, Alvin Bragg talking about the evidence. So listen to this.
6: We have... Uh, had available to the office additional evidence uh, that was not in the office's possession prior to my time here. Text messages, emails, contemporaneous phone records, multiple witnesses, all of that uh, will be, as you saw in the fall, uh, borne out in a public courtroom uh, in downtown Manhattan.
1: Okay, Karen. So that's why he says that he was able to do it when his predecessors, as John Zell just pointed out, did not. They had he had more evidence, he says.
7: That's right. He did say that. And actually, that supports the case. But, you know, I think the other thing that's really critically important is, again, we've talked about this as hush money. It wasn't just hush money. Number one, let's think about this. Hush money is used so that people in power can continue to abuse their power. We have many instances of that. But secondly, this was about, I think, as you said, subverting democracy. The American people had a right to know the details, make their own decision. And he decided that we didn't need the voters didn't need to know that. And so, you know, weak or strong case, I think it. It's, we're going to have to continue to vacillate between the political ca- political story versus the legal. And I think what is good legally may not always be good politically. Clearly, Donald Trump doesn't care. And based on his speech tonight, he's just going to say what he wants to say. Coleman?
8: So I think one thing we've learned with Trump is that voters don't actually care as much as we thought about that personal stuff. Like, Voters knew who Donald Trump was when they, vote, when they pulled the lever. They knew he was the kind of guy that would have an affair, frankly. And we've seen other politicians do this, too. And so f- for me, it seems this legal case faces two uphill battles. One is that it's not clear whether the payout was a, a federal crime. And that's, we, we see this equivocation from the Biden's Justice Department. And then there's this second hurdle of can you actually use a federal crime to upgrade that state misdemeanor uh, to, to, a, to a felony. And that's never been done before, right? And so the, the, right now, it seems the odds are against Alvin Bragg. He has a lot to prove. He has everything to prove right here. And, and Trump's legal team is probably feeling somewhat confident.
1: Mosh, here is what the statement of facts why Alvin Bragg was able to connect it, in, at least in his argument— to the campaign finance laws. And he says the defendant directed lawyer A, Michael Cohen, to delay making a payment to woman two, Stormy Daniels, as long as possible. He instructed, basically Michael Cohen, that if they could delay the payment until after the election, they could avoid paying altogether because at that point it would not matter if the story became public.
9: Absolutely. But I think that, you know, one of the questions people are asking is, number one, the Department of Justice didn't pursue this. Number two, the Federal Election Commission didn't pursue this. Incidentally, there was one uh, fine paid related to, uh, misallocation or, uh, or not correctly allocating your expenses in 2016. Hillary Clinton played a fine to the FEC in 2016 for, uh, what they paid to the steel, for the steel dossier, right? The opposition research against Trump. What did they file that in uh, as the Clinton campaign as a legal expense? They made a fine for that. Mm -hmm. So I think there are ways to look at the data. I mean, I've been talking to voters today, Democrats, independents and Republicans, people who have voted for Trump, people who never voted for Trump. And a lot of people are asking, like, "Eh, this feels like a stretch. I I, I don't know that this changes my opinion on on him. And um, and they're just generally confused. And I think that speaks to John's point, which is how are you going to convince a jury unanimously to convict this guy if trying to explain what this crime is? Is so complex,
7: but yet he was able to get an indictment. I mean, there was a you know a grand jury of everyday Americans who heard the evidence on both sides and said, "Yes, we will vote to indict." I mean, that is a my different standard. standard. It's a so different it's standard, standard but it still carries. Or, you, know, you can carries always get away. an
4: indictment, though. That's the problem. I
7: think you know what, though I, I do want to take issue with that because I, I think that suggests that the American people who sat on that grand jury didn't take the seriousness of if you're going to vote to indict a former president, that is not just Joe I'm, around the corner. I'm and I think sure they took that very right. seriously. But but I don't I, want to I,
4: I've that. done yep. zillions of grand juries. And if you present something to them and you ask them to vote for it, they vote for it. The The real key here is this is not a complicated case. That's why this indictment is so good. It is very simple. The violations here are, are state income tax violations, you're going to get some boring accountant up on the witness stand who's going to take the jury right from the false documents, right straight through the tax returns, false returns that were filed in New York State. That's a felony. That's simple. There's nothing strange or novel about that at all. There are also New York State... election law violations that they're going to be able to tie it to so it's not tied just to federal law Mm -hmm. which is not so strange either because a lot of federal law and state law relies on each other's laws in order to come up with a crime
1: okay obviously we shall see thank you all for your perspectives panel stick around when we come back we're going to talk about how donald trump looked in court today it was a different trump than we're used to from his body language to his facial expressions (laughs)
7: <laughs> it worked out. Well, well done. Well done.
1: All right. No one has ever seen this before in the United States. A former president sitting at a defense table inside a criminal courtroom. And the visuals were striking from Donald Trump's body language to his facial expression. What it all telegraphed. I'm back with Karen, Nick, Mosh, and Coleman. So, guys, as viewers can tell you, I'm a body language expert or I fancy myself one. And so, um, Mosh. What I saw was Donald Trump looking different than he is. You know, sometimes he comes in and commands a room, as we know, and or commands a rally. This was him at a table. We have pictures. He looks sort of tired. His eyes look kind of glazed. He was sort of hunched over. He wasn't sort of sitting proudly as though I've got this. I'm going to. He didn't. Uh, reporters in the courtroom describe him as walking in noticeably, markedly slowly. He didn't sort of come in spoiling for a fight. It just. Well, what, what did you see in the courtroom today?
9: I saw that he definitely had a talking to by his lawyers in advance. I mean, and ultimately, I imagine they said to him, "Listen, this is unpredictable. We need to go in humble to the extent that is possible." <laughs> uh, and that best. ultimately, this is a rare situation for Mr. President, where you aren't in charge of the room, you aren't in charge of the meeting, you aren't in charge of what's going to be the result. And so this is a rare situation in the past, I don't know, seven years, where he hasn't... He's gone into a situation where he hasn't... You know, it's like this in the presidential debates. And even there, he has an ability
8: to kind of take control. In
9: this case, no control.
8: Can I completely disagree with that? Yeah, Absolutely. please. <laughs> Donald Trump doesn't strike me as a kind of man who becomes humble after one conversation. You know, like this... He, he doesn't strike me as the type of person that can snap into a kind of mellow humility, right? I think he is on all the time. So... What I read when I see his, and I agree, a kind of lack of energy, both in the courtroom and in his speech, actually. The speech was short, and it it was also only about 70 to 80% the volume and intensity. It
1: was also on prompter, I thought was interesting. He wasn't just riffing. He had written that. that. Somebody had written that out for him. But what did you see?
8: Well, what I see is someone that really is tired, someone that is exhausted, maybe even a little bit. Uh, afraid of of what's happening. Like I said, I think the odds are still with his legal team over Bragg at this stage, but it looks like genuine exhaustion rather than a strategy for the court. Well,
4: let me just say, I've done this hundreds of times as a prosecutor, going to arraignments and having people come in. Nobody comes in happy. Nobody comes skipping into the courtroom. They don't take control. They can't take control. There's a judge sitting in a bench that's above you. You're down there, All you can do is say, yes, Your Honor, yes, sir. You cannot take control. You can't be a bully like Donald Trump normally does when he's out in public. This was a whole new setting for Donald Trump. He was there just like any other defendant that's brought into a courtroom who sits there and cowers in front of the judge. When the judge walks in, everybody stands up. When the judge walks out, then people stand up and then they sit down. This is a whole new world for Donald Trump, where he is not the king of the room. And that's what you saw today.
7: Actually, you know, what I feel like I saw shifted after I saw him speak, because knowing the psychology of Donald Trump in 2016, one of the things in the aftermath we heard from his people is they would, you know, build a wall, right? He couldn't remember the policy on immigration. So they said, just say, build a wall. And he got a great reaction. So he kept saying it at rallies. They would just give him phrases to say, right? This looked more to me like they said, look, from door to door, you got to do what we say. Then you get to go do your press conference. So that was sort of more of a carrot and stick. Now, they probably, I would imagine the lawyers were probably not so happy with what was in the prompter. And I wonder if that will come back and bite them simply because it was clearly written out. It was the best hits of grievances, but very specific attacks, again, on the judge, his daughter, the other prosecutors, that to see that. In a written speech in the teleprompter, completely flouting what the judge had just hours prior, and we're going to talk
1: about that in a minute in our next segment because the the judge gave very explicit instructions about what how to tone it down, and it took Donald Trump about four hours to break to violate that request from the judge. he He was
7: probably sitting there thinking oh, I, I mm-hmm, I'm, Oh, I got you, I'm going to... Like, he was probably writing that speech in his head as yeah, he sat l- there.
4: Let me just make one other point. One other thing that the, the Trump team tried to do, and they did it successfully, was to keep the judge from having cameras in the courtroom so that they could actually televised the whole proceeding, and they claimed that was because it would be a circus atmosphere. They did it because they knew that that would make Donald Trump look really small and that it would put him in a very unfavorable light and would not make great footage for a campaign campaign. Uh, commercial. Fair,
1: but the judge did allow the, a still photographer, five pool yeah. still right. photographers, so, which is why we have these photos right. of him, which I just think sometimes still photos are even more telling. I mean, they yeah. capture these moments, and I just think that we don't often see this expression of him looking, again, in that sort of hunched posture. What, the way, um, Moshe, I, I saw it, um, having been you know around Donald Trump personally and in the same room several times, is that this is when he didn't know what was in the indictment. This is when he didn't know what was coming. And, you know, pundits have been saying there might be a surprise in there. We don't know what those 34 counts are. We have no idea. So I see someone bracing a little bit more here, and then tonight back in his element.
9: Right. In the, during the court appearance today is when the prosecutors asked for a gag order, right? There were a bunch of intangibles, unpredictable things that were about to take place. So the last thing he wanted to do was to potentially bring that upon himself. So in this case, he's deferential you know like I, I know you disagree but ultimately <laughs> this is this is the man that has been described by multiple reporters in the courtroom today and then he was back home at mar-a-lago what what did the reporter say djing and <laughs> you know doing his thing amongst his crew so he was on good behavior today in court and he doesn't have to be back till what december 4th
7: yes potentially? this try for this one for this, yes
4: for this there's, there's, right. yeah. there's gonna be another one by the end of april
7: yeah You're-
1: yeah, what makes you think that? that be, be, because
4: so well. the, the um, special grand jury came down in the middle of January. In Fulton County, the regular grand juries are two months each. They went from January to February this year. The new ones came in on March 1st. So it'll be March to April 1st. So my guess, best guess is that by the end of April, we're going to see an indictment from Fulton County.
1: OK, friends, thank you very much. You heard it here first. <laughs> Meanwhile, as we've been discussing, the judge told everyone connected to the case today to refrain from making any statements that could jeopardize the well-being of anyone. It took Donald Trump about four hours to violate that. So now what? That's nice. The judge in Trump's case warning everyone today not to make statements that could incite violence or civil unrest or threaten the well-being of any person. It took Donald Trump about four hours to do the opposite of that request when during his speech at Mar-a-Lago, he personally attacked the judge. I'm back with my panel. OK, so here's what the judge said in the courtroom today. Let me read it to everybody. He said, please refrain from making comments or engaging in conduct that has the potential to incite violence, create civil unrest, or jeopardize the safety or well-being of any individuals. Please do not engage in words or conduct which jeopardizes the rule of law, particularly as it applies to these proceedings in this courtroom. Four hours later, Nick, um, Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago went after, insulted the judge, called him names. Uh, went after his wife and his daughter, talked about where his daughter has worked. Don Jr., the former president's son, put up a picture on social media of the daughter. Does that violate the judge's request?
4: I would think it would. Uh, But the judge is kind of in a bind here. He's got to be very careful what he does. I mean, I wouldn't think that right away he's going to put a gag order on Donald Trump. I mean, what's... Different about this case is is that Donald Trump is running for president and for political office, and he's out there campaigning. So, my guess is he's going to do pretty much as the judge did in the Roger Stone situation. If you recall, Roger Stone actually had a photograph of the judge with crosshairs and and kind of a sight for a, a, a rifle. And she brought him in and basically read him the Riot Act. And that sort of took care of the problem. And I kind of think that's what the judge is going to do here. Um, that I don't see them see him entering a gag order so quickly because this is
7: this is a tough but case to do should maybe call them in with a warning. Well, but yeah. the, the judge actually did during the proceedings say that because of his First Amendment rights, doubly so because he is a candidate right. for president. So he already kind of gave him a special accommodation as a candidate. And again, not even four hours on his way back to Mar-a-Lago tweets go out. They're trying to raise money. There was the T-shirts and already made with the fake mugshot. So ju- as the judge was talking, they were already violating that.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is this has real life consequences, as we know, tragically. I've interviewed many times Judge Esther Salas, whose son and husband were shot by a, you know, an aggrieved uh, attorney who had appeared in their courtroom. This this happens. This is real. And so, you know, it's not fun and games. I mean, I know that Don Jr. puts out this stuff without thinking about how reckless it is. But the judge said, if you don't comply, the judge said, as you point out, that he's very reluctant to do a gag order. But if they don't comply, that he would call them back in, basically. Your thoughts, Colin?
8: These words can have real consequences. I mean, we, we saw what happened to Paul Pelosi. We saw the threats on Brett Kavanaugh. This is a disturbing trend in American political life of uh, you know, people stirring up, uh, you know, violent and mentally unsound individuals to go commit violence against our public figures, and Trump should be ashamed of himself for contributing to that rhetoric. But again, it's been his style for years. This is nothing new, uh, but it, it's worth reiterating that this is a very harmful trend in American life.
1: Mosh, uh, one person who has used violent rhetoric uh, against various elected officials as well as other people is the congresswoman from Georgia, Marjorie Taylor Greene. She announced that she was coming to. New York to stage a protest in support of Donald Trump. She did that, but she was greeted by counter-protesters today, and she beat an extremely hasty retreat away from her protest. She had gone there to try to, you know, speak out in terms of Donald Trump, and she was able to for a few minutes, and then she was shouted down by, again, counter-protesters, and that's her basically retreating because this is New York City, (laughs) <laughs> this isn't Georgia. It's, it's not home court.
9: It's not, yeah. it's not the home stadium. It was interesting. I mean, the, for as calm as things were inside, the sort of circus outside, right? So we had a reporter out there. I think they counted about 300 media, 300 journalists, about 150 protesters, uh, 100 of them anti-Trump, 50 pro-Trump. Um, Marjorie's out there. I guess George Santos made an appearance yeah. as well. Um, and then uh, Congresswoman Green did an interview where she then compared... Former president to uh, Nelson Mandela and Jesus Christ
7: mm-hmm. on the day that Martin Luther King Jr. was shot. Let's just add that and, just and for, just during for, Hollywood, <laughs> yes. right? And the, and actually, the interview uh, I was told by a Republican operative was with her boyfriend. He actually was the person conducting the interview. He happens to be a podcaster, Marjorie Taylor granz yeah. Yes, is she have a husband? She did. She, she did. She that, did. I was going to say that. I can't tell you. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's intriguing. I'm just going to keep getting more bizarre. <laughs> but,
9: but I think you know it speaks to they feel energized. On another network tonight, Lindsey Graham was on, begging viewers if you have four dollars, three dollars, donate it to Donald Trump. Right
1: and it's now. working, by the way. I mean, they, they have raised millions. We don't know exactly how many because we can't necessarily trust the Trump team to give us the exact amount. But, but we'll but get an FTC worked. report at Absolutely. some Absolutely, yeah. and it has worked.
9: Absolutely. This has energized. Well, ultimately, his, one of his core arguments is, they're out to get me. Well, they literally indict, they indicted him today. So, you know, he's had his shtick for years. You know, like, let's go back to 2016. They came after me on impeachment one, impeachment two, yada, yada, yada. And it felt old for a bit until today. It's received a fresh boost, right? Literally from the DA of New York. So that's energized him. That's energized the core base. Now, the question is, he has a primary campaign to run against the Republicans and then he's got a general election campaign to run. And I'm you know, curious as to how independent this will play with independence and right. et cetera out there
7: <laughs> in the I, fall I, of 24. I think what it showed and today I think really helped Democrats and independents. I think democracy, we just saw last week with the PBS Marist poll that independents and Democrats uh, concerns about protecting democracy are like number one and number two. And we know that. From the post-election polls in 2022, people who moved from Republican to vote Democrat did so because of their concerns from January 6th. So I think the other thing, you know, Lindsey Graham and all these Republicans have to worry, if there is violence, they own that. All of those Republicans who have been in the tank for him and defending him, obviously they'll try to step away if that happens. But I do think they own that because they are... Also contributing. Well, I mean, you say that, but January
1: 6th, they've managed to sort of step away from a recast, I guess, as
7: not violence that they own. That's true. Um, But they did take a hit at the during the election 2022. They didn't win the big majority they thought they were going to get.
4: And there's going to be a big indictment from Georgia that's going to change all that because you're not going to just have Donald Trump in the dock. It's going to be some of his cohorts.
1: You are full of predictions, Nick. Nick <laughs> <laughs> ends every one of our blocks with a bombshell prediction. Uh, all right. Well done. Uh, thank you. All right. Meanwhile, multiple investigations now in an arrest and arraignment. Our presidential historian is here next with What This All Means. former U.S. president standing before a judge answering to 34 criminal charges. In our 245-year history, this has never happened. The panel is back with me, and we're joined by presidential historian Timothy Naftali. Uh, Tim, great to have you here. Your thoughts as you watched all of this today?
2: Well, my first thought was that the founders anticipated that this would happen at some point, not involving these details, but they did anticipate in Article I of our Constitution that this could happen that someone could commit a crime while they were in office. And then once they left office, they could face criminal charges. So in a sense, it took us a long time to get here. But this is a road that was not unpredicted by our founders.
1: That's really interesting. And it it is interesting that it took so long to get here. We had a few close calls (laughs) before this. Well,
2: I want to talk about a couple of close calls because I think it puts into context what we saw tonight. Okay, And I'm talking about the Mar-a-Lago speech. For me... Um, I felt like this was a split-screen day, and the first screen was the morning, uh, the afternoon, I mean, and the second was the evening. It was somber, sad. It's never nice to watch somebody come and be arraigned. Uh, um, the president, former president, looked sad. He, he looked. It looked as if he had finally understood the nature of what he was facing. And then the evening, the show, where... President Trump spoke as if this is one long narrative of victimhood. He went back to 2016 and he took us through every, every station of the cross um, until now. And he spoke with venom about those moments that we as a nation are still coming to grips with. I mean, he talked about having been stolen, having the election stolen from him. It's like January 6th never happened. We, we are trying to process to this day the violence that occurred on Capitol Hill and the speech tonight, it was magical thinking, it never happened. So the two near indictments. To, to a certain degree, both Bill Clinton and Richard Nixon showed some contrition. To some degree, both Bill Clinton and Richard Nixon understood the pain that they had taken this country through. And to some extent, both the independent counsel and the special prosecutor of the day, the name changed, uh, reflected on that. And it shaped their decision about whether to indict or not. The case of the special prosecutor, the pardon came first. But I think the evidence is reasonably clear. and Nick may have some other thoughts on this, too, that Leon Jaworski, who was the special prosecutor in the Nixon case, actually didn't want to indict Nixon because he didn't think Nixon would get a fair trial. So think about the contrition and, to some extent, the willingness to admit error of Bill Clinton and Richard Nixon and contrast it with tonight. One of the things that we are facing today is an unchastened demagogue. And our country is not good at dealing with demagogues. There wasn't a lot of courage shown in the McCarthy period. There wasn't a lot of courage shown in the George Wallace period. We are not good at processing demagogues. Now, I, smarter people than me will tell you why. I don't know why, but we are bad at it. Mm. And tonight, we heard a demagogue who was pretending that he had committed no errors. And at the very least, say what you will about what happened today in New York, but a group of grand jurors felt strong enough to say that the former commander-in-chief should at least go to trial on the basis of alleged crimes. That Commander-in-Chief showed no contrition, no respect for the institutions of the criminal law, and once again, I think, I think, dared us all. His approach, again, unlike Bill Clinton and unlike Richard Nixon, was not to explain what he did and then accept that he had made errors. Yeah but to tear down the system that dared
4: challenge him.
1: And so, Nick, did you see that difference?
4: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it goes back to Huey Long. I mean, we have, we've had this problem for a number of years in this country. With Huey Long, it just was pure happenstance that he got assassinated. I mean, he posed a real threat to Roosevelt back in 1934, along with Reverend um, Coughlin. Um, I mean, that was right in the middle of the Depression when Germany had the same problem and wound up with Adolf Hitler. And we didn't. I mean, our democracy survived. But it's hard to deal with a demagogue. I totally agree with you. I mean, Richard Nixon at least could listen to reason when Barry Goldwater and the group of senators went to the Oval Office and said, look, the jig is up. We've got you. The tape, you've been lying to us. You've got to go. He left.
2: Can you imagine if Richard—you know, and and, and when Richard Nixon accepted the Supreme Court decision that was against him, could you imagine— Donald Trump accepting a decision that went against him. He would attack the Supreme Court. He would tear down each person individually. He would try to bring the system down around him for his own sake. Now, How do you think
8: Nixon would have reacted if he got indicted, actually?
2: Nixon expected to. In fact, uh, he had a conversation with Nelson Rockefeller, who had just been nominated to be vice president of the United States, uh, where he anticipated he would be indicted, and he was asking people what it would be like to be in jail. Richard Nixon expected to be indicted, and, and he knew he was guilty. And all, of his,
4: all of his cohorts like, had been indicted would he have and been uh, spent so time in jail so, about, so, about so, it, or so, would, so, would yeah. he
8: have gone, like, secret Nixon tapes on, yeah. the, on the country?
1: Very quickly. Ten seconds.
8: I think Richard Nixon
2: would have accepted the indictment. Um, I, Richard Nixon cared, even though he committed crimes. He cared about the institutions of this country, and he wanted his legacy to be that he was a great president. Donald Trump has yet to show that he cares about the institution of the presidency.
1: Tim, thank you very much. Really great um, to get the historical perspective always. We're going to have much more on today's events. Donald Trump arrested and arraigned. But next, some election results are coming into CNN in Chicago and Wisconsin, races that have implications for some of the most hotly debated issues facing this country. It's election night and CNN can project that Janet Protosewicz, a Milwaukee County Circuit Court judge, will win a critical seat on the Wisconsin Supreme Court, shifting the balance towards liberals for the first time in more than a decade. This is a consequential outcome since the state's highest court is getting ready to settle a legal battle over Wisconsin's law that bans abortion in nearly all circumstances. This race shattered spending records on the state judicial elections and shows how abortion is motivating voters nearly a year after Roe v. Wade was overturned. We can also project that progressive Brandon Johnson will become the next mayor of Chicago, defeating Paul Vallis, a moderate Democrat. Johnson campaigned on promoting more detectives, arguing that solving more crimes would increase Chicago residents' trust in police and deter more crime. All right, our live coverage continues right after this. We have more on Donald Trump's arrest and what happens next. (music) Donald Trump went from being arrested and arraigned today to later tonight, his grievances and lies. That's what he was focused on in his post arraignment speech at Mar a Lago tonight. Here with me to discuss, we have Republican strategist Doug High, the New York Times' Estelle Herndon, criminal defense attorney Joey Jackson, and Kai Von Schroff, who was a digital organizer for Hillary Clinton. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being here. It's been described, Doug, as a split screen day. So, first, we saw something we've never seen before in this country a former US president being arrested and arraigned in a criminal court in Manhattan and the the here are the, here's the split screen basically Donald Trump in court there are only still um photos cuz that's all the judge allowed but he looked deflated frankly um he looked sort of hunched his facial expression um was not kind of uh bright or you know ready to fight Um, he said in his own words, not guilty, and that's all he said, but he walked in very slowly to the courthouse. And then he was back in his element on the right side of the screen, back at Mar-a-Lago, and back to basically playing the hits of his grievances and all of the ways that he's been wronged. Are Republicans happy today or nervous today? Uh,
10: Well, they're both. Um, some Republicans are happy, and it depends on what Republican you talk to. Some Republicans are happy because they've got something that they can rally behind that's going to bring the party back towards Donald Trump. And we've seen that in his poll numbers. We've seen that in some of the early fundraising. All of them are also nervous simultaneously because they know that we are in uncharted waters. And we don't exactly know, even though we, we see so often how Trump reacts to things, we don't know how Trump is going to react long term on this because – as, as you were saying, this uncharted waters for him. And ultimately, when you're, when you're in a campaign atmosphere or working for a politician, when you're doing media of any sort, you want them in their comf- comfort zone on some level. And lights and cameras and all that are not normally com- comfortable things. Donald Trump's very comfortable around them, but not in a courtroom like this. So he was out of his comfort zone, went back to his comfort zone. It's why we saw him look the way he did during the day and then at night back to the Donald Trump we all know.
1: I said, I mean, as Doug just said, this gives Republicans something to rally around. Did they want to rally back around Donald Trump? I mean, where does this leave Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, etc.?
6: Yeah. When you look at that kind of segment of the Republican class this has not been what they wanted to see, right? They have seen, to Doug's point, the post-poll numbers come back to him, the, the kind of grassroots really come back to him, that language of victimhood really serving him well in the primary. And for those type of people, they thought this legal indictment was going to help support fall away from him. But what you have seen kind of in the last couple months is the, is kind of the Republican voter come back to Donald Trump because it really fits within the narrative of, of weaponization of the federal government that already exists for Republicans. And so there was a kind of a miscalculation I think from some of those Republican candidates who thought that the arraignment that the indictment that the legal trouble would do the work for them. And that's not that's not panning out so far. That we know we have a couple more to maybe to go that this is only going to escalate so it's that that story isn't fully done yet, but to this point they have not seen the fall off in support that I think some folks expected when this stuff came down. Come
11: on. Yeah, I think, you know, we just saw Trump's rally where, again, he's railing against law enforcement in this incredibly hypocritical moment where just last week he was saying how much respect he has for this grand jury and the grand jury system as a whole. And meanwhile, the Republican Party has for years now been chanting, blue lives Matter,"s back the blue. And suddenly, when it's not about police abuse of unarmed black folks, the entire MAGA movement is attacking law enforcement.
1: Didn't we already see that on January 6th? Didn't we already see mm-hmm. them exposed as not supporting police officers on January I
11: think 6th? so, and I think we also saw some accountability. It's been slow, but in response to January 6th, and maybe that accountability really Stop some violence that has been really Trump's goal to incite this week. We didn't see that today, thank thank God. On that point, um, when
6: we were, I was outside at that courthouse today and you heard people mention that the crowds were a little less, that they thought things were a little more uh, calm because of the fear uh, of consequences that kind of January 6th allow for some of those folks who used to think that they could kind of act with impunity. But
1: were they saying that outside of the courthouse today? Yes.
6: I mean, when I talked to the young Republican's president who helped organize that rally with Marjorie Taylor Greene, he is acknowledging that they're not getting the kind of crowd that they may have expected today, and they think that there is some level of distance that some people have because of the things that have happened in the last couple of years. So it may not be to the level of extent of accountability that maybe some liberals or maybe some 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 folks might have wanted. But for those kind of segment of Trump supporters, it has not been without notice that there has been real
10: consequences. We saw way, Kevin vi- McCarthy and Republican leadership saying don't protest whatever you do 100% don't there protest. There was real, there was real don't energy protest. to say that. Mm-hmm. And
1: by the way, very quickly, you brought up Marjorie Taylor Greene. She um, underestimated her reception today (laughs) in New York. You know, she invited people to come and protest, but she didn't expect the counter protesters, more of whom came, and basically shouted her off the stage until she beat a. You couldn't
6: hear her. You couldn't hear. I didn't hear a word that uh, uh, the congresswoman said because there were so much folks. They came with whistles. There was the the energy on this side today was definitely from the anti-Trump side.
1: Okay, Joey, as an attorney, what did you see today?
12: I saw quite a bit. Uh, A few things I want to say. Number one, I'm not sure why people are acting like you need a murder case in order to go after a president. As a person who practices in these courts, I've seen people convicted for far less. I've seen people charged and certainly with far less specificity than this.
1: So when people say it's a Uh, weak case, you don't understand that line. I I
12: don't get it. The bottom line is that if we're about the rule of law, should I mean, what should it be that he would have done what would have justified this? That's what I'm not understanding. And the other issue to me is that... I read indictments like this all the time. Why do we feel that there has to be this indictment which represents a novel, right, of exactly what he did and when he did it and where he went? We did have the statement of facts, but it was a bare bones indictment. That's what's required by the law. So the fact of the matter is, is that there's 34 what I see as substantive counts. If those counts, I think the calculus for a prosecutor has to be, as it's always been, as I believe, and that is my former office, and they're very adept at prosecuting financial crimes. We are the financial counsel Was a crime committed? And can you prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt? If you have those elements, then move forward.
1: Well, I think, Joey, part of the element of surprise was that when we heard that there were 34 counts, that sounded as though there must be a surprise in there. There must be something we don't know. People weren't expecting 34 all connected to the Stormy Daniels. It's
12: it's done constantly and regularly. What prosecutors do is they may lay out what we call the same transaction and occurrence, a series of facts. And on that series of facts, they Anything that would support that they move forward with, and just to be clear about it, all you need is one in the event the president is convicted of one of those former president of those 34 counts that represents a significant problem. But for people to say, Well, you know, you know, it needed to be a murder case to go forward, it's a crime. And the people who sit next to me in court they have a lot to say about, Well, wait a second, he could do all of this, and just now they're getting to it, but I just did this, and I may have to go away for some time. I'm not, I'm not getting that at all.
1: I on your thoughts?
11: Absolutely. I think, you know, people are saying this is a weaker case or it's an advantage to Trump that they started with these indictments. I disagree because I think we're going to see the same arguments from Republicans on everything. And it's going to become obvious there is not one crime that they would agree to hold Trump accountable for. As he told us in 2016, he could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot someone. And Republicans wouldn't bat an eye. And we're seeing that play out.
1: He already seems to be violating one of the requests, not an order from the judge, but a request from the judge. The judge basically um, warned everybody in the courtroom to be careful with their rhetoric today because we've all seen what can happen. And so he said... Today, please refrain from making comments or engaging in conduct that has the potential to incite violence, create civil unrest, or jeopardize the safety or well-being of any individuals. Also, please do not engage in words or conduct, which jeopardizes the rule of law, particularly as it applies to these proceedings in this courtroom, Doug. And then a few hours later, Donald Trump went to Mar-a-Lago and called the judge names, called his wife a name, um, talked about his daughter. And Don Jr., the president's uh, son, put out a picture of the daughter, and that sounds like that violates that request.
10: Well, Trumps are going to Trump, and we know that. And it's, it's not a trite saying, you have know, we've, we've seen this happen before where they've gone after particular families. But ultimately, what Donald Trump is saying here is a uh, robust, grotesque, even if you want to, argument politically that we heard in 1998. When I was working in the House of Representatives, uh, we had an impeachment of a president. And that argument essentially was, even presidents have private lives when there's a sexual matter that's going on, which is what's happened here, and I'm being found guilty or being charged because of the details around it. And ultimately, the United States Senate agreed with Bill Clinton's analysis on this or his argument on this and saying, you know, we know he did something wrong and we know that he not just did something wrong, but lied under oath, a crime, but we're not going to impeach, we're not going to convict him on the impeachment on this. Trump, Again, he's going to do it how he does it. But his lawyers are essentially arguing that same thing. We're talking about the paperwork and the detail. And if you don't have your mind made up on Donald Trump one way or another, that he's a saint or a sinner or the saint or the sinner, there are people who feel that way who are going to look at this and hear Trump's arguments somewhat rationally. It's why these other cases are the more damaging ones potentially to Trump and why a Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley's waiting for that because then they can go say there's just too much drama against Donald Trump. Yeah, he's a victim. So you really too much think drama. that
1: at the next ones, when the next cases, if they have an outcome, that's when Republican when his Republican uh, contenders will back away from him.
10: I'm going to completely botch an Elvis Presley song and say it's then or never. If after the second or third one comes and they can't then say there's too much here because but- this case is different. If they can't do it, then it will never happen. There's been too much here
6: for a long time. I don't disagree. About Donald Trump. And so there has been enough political ammunition for his opponents to call him having too much drama for years. And their unwillingness to do that is based in the reality that the Republican electorate will not let them. They Mm -hmm. understand that he still controls enough of that base who is still with him. And that is the core problem. Politically for them here. It's not that they can't say the words. It's if they said the words, they would lose a a section of the Republican base that is not that they they cannot do and also be the nominee for the next election. And so it is an argument they have to make to those type of supporters who have stuck with him through many a scandal that has built up to this point. And they have spent a long time ignoring those things that have built up to this one to then now come out even if it's indictment number two.
1: We shall see. Thank you all very much. Stick around, because when we come back, we'll dig into who's who in this case and what's at stake for each of them. The historic indictment of former President Trump unsealed today. CNN's Tom Foreman is here to help us sort through the key figures in this case.
13: Hey Allison, let's start with the person at the center of this whole case the defendant, Donald J. Trump, former president of the United States. These charges stem from the 2016 election. That is when he allegedly paid this money to this woman to keep quiet this affair from the past and then allegedly, according to these papers, falsified business records about all of that. He is a candidate for president in 2024. He denies any wrongdoing in this and says, in fact, this is all about political persecution to keep him from getting back in office again. The prosecutor, Alvin Bragg, he is the Manhattan District Attorney since January of 2022. He was previously criticized for not charging Trump. He is also prosecuting Steve Bannon... Longtime Trump advisor, in a completely separate case about money being raised for that wall on the southern border of the United States. That's a fraud case, which is still moving forward. The judge in all of this, Juan Mershon, he's very experienced. He has a reputation for fairness and for toughness. He sent Trump's CFO, Alan Weisselberg, to jail in a tax fraud case that involved the Trump organization, and he fined the organization more than a million dollars. Witnesses, I'm using it in a broad sense because we're not sure who all will actually show up in court in this case, but Michael Cohen, former Trump attorney who went to jail over many of the very same charges we're talking about now, he says Trump knew of these hush money payments from the beginning, knew all about it, and that's going to be pretty key to the prosecution case here. Stormy Daniels, originally Stephanie Clifford, adult film actress. She's the one who said she had this encounter with Trump, this affair or sexual tryst, and was paid to keep quiet about all of it. And then there is the defense. Joe Tacopina, he's a lawyer for Donald Trump. He's defended Trump in another defamation case. Todd Blanche previously represented Paul Manafort, A Trump insider who, as you know, went to prison for federal charges, he managed to keep it from becoming an echoed state charge. And Susan Necklace worked on uh, that tax fraud case in which Trump's CFO went off to jail. Just some of the faces. There may be many, many more as this case moves forward over what could be a very long time. Allison.
1: Okay, Tom, thank you very much. Let's bring back my panel now. Uh, Joey, let's talk, well, all of us, let's talk about these two attorneys who are on the Trump team. And they are night and day, it appears. So Todd Blanche, who's from this white shoe law firm, prestigious law firm. And then there's Joe Jacopina, who's more of a, I guess, street fighter, cable news fixture. And today we just saw it in stark relief. First, Todd Blanche came out and was talking to the press. And then Joe Tacopina kind of jumped in, like, let me handle this. So here was that moment.
14: There's nothing else to say except that the, the district attorney. Um, this 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 office has existed for decades and decades, and you have ne- you can find one if you'd like. You you'll never see a charge like this um, ever.
6: You understand this case. You understand this. It. It's as simple as this: a state prosecutor is prosecuting a federal election law violation that doesn't exist according to federal election law officials. It's as simple as that. That you could sum it all up like that.
1: He was like, yeah, whatever you said, Todd, it's as simple as this. Um, So, Joy, I just thought it was interesting to watch them both together.
12: Yes. And the new ad, of course, of the attorney just preceding the court appearance itself. Right. Bringing him on. So I think, of course, uh, you need a team. It takes a village, particularly in this case, where you have all of these various accounts uh, of this indictment. Uh, you know, but I think the one thing they talked about was that there was some feeling that there was some discord. Who's going to be the head dog? Who's not going to do this? Who's going to do that? And they seem to suggest today that they were united. They uh-huh. were united in the defense of Mr. Trump. I'm glad that, that you they- fell for that,
1: <laughs> Joey, because here's, here's that moment, which was awkward. Ah, here's okay. that moment where they talked about that. There's a oh, lot of speculation
5: about the unity among the defense attorneys look at this There's look at us of, is that why
14: you chose look. to do
11: this
3: look. to, oh, come, no, out to come out together yeah. we chose, no, no, that's we chose to come out together so we could speak with one voice but there is no disunity here that's gossip and it's nonsense
1: nothing says unity like somebody <laughs> patting their my head and running his fingers <laughs> through my hair like like Joe optics are important right <laughs>
12: <laughs> optics are important <laughs> You know, I mean, ultimately, they're going to have to really now move to attacking the indictment, right? That before this, it was all about, and it still to some degree, is about the politics, the politics. And I think they're using this to say there's nothing to see here. But now you have to move from the, the whole issue of a political prosecution to what does the indictment say? Is it legally sufficient? Can we challenge it appropriately? Can we dismiss it before there's an actual trial? And it'll take the team to do just that.
1: Come on.
11: Yeah, you know, I'm sold that they're working together so well. But I think, you know, Takapina loves the press. He was just this weekend saying that there's no reason to believe this judge is biased. And yet now we have Republicans going after this judge's daughter. And just, we have to know it's incredibly dangerous. We know that in 2020, a Trump volunteer shot New Jersey judge Esther Solas' son. And this type of rhetoric, this sort of posting somebody's picture for a mob to chase after is absolutely unacceptable. And I think that can't get lost.
10: Mm -hmm. One constant that we've seen since Donald Trump took that escalator ride down, you know, just a few blocks from here is that his campaign, his administration, whether it's communications, legislative, legal, certainly had two tracks always going on. There were the professionals and there was the Adams family. And what did we see today? We saw the professional standing next to the Adams family and I'll leave it to everybody else to decide. And You know, this probably better than I when you're in the White House dealing with this um, over those past four years. But this is a constant. So there's going to be drama within Trump world because Trump creates that own drama, and it's never going to go away. I mean, that's how he makes
6: decisions, is kind of putting folks against each other to try to see what comes out on top. He makes decisions by watching television, kind of seeing Mm -hmm. who makes him feel most defended. And so you've had, to your point, even in the White House when he was making policy decisions, a kind of dual track that's happening. I think that sees you play out here. But I also think, to your point about his countenance in that courtroom, it has become clear that there needs to be some seriousness uh, uh, when it relates to these type of charges. And there has been real reporting uh, about the escalation and it really weighing on him uh, uh, personally. And so I think you have a kind of uh, figure who is torn between the personal kind of weight of what's happening here and the political reality that he is trying to weaponize, he was trying to use to help him get his ultimate goal, which is retribution, as he told us at CPAC, which is to use this to fuel his political campaign and make that way back to the White House. And so That personal weight and that political jet fuel are are, are in conflict among this one person.
1: Another thing that um, former President Trump is trying to weaponize is the judge's family. He went after the judge's uh, wife, as I've said, and his daughter. And one of the things, Joey, that he said is that the judge's daughter has worked for the Harris-Biden campaign. That's not... Uh, Exactly true. Of course, Donald Trump takes liberties uh, with the facts. So she works for a digital consulting firm doing marketing, doing website, things like that, online digital stuff. And they work for Democratic um, leaders and politicians and they work for candidates. And they did some work. This firm did some work for the Biden-Harris campaign. So What does that mean for the judge? Should the judge recuse himself because of that?
12: I I don't think so at all. Uh, But what I do think is that going back to Donald Trump himself and in the event you're representing him, how do you control your client? Mm-hmm. And how do you pursue a defense consistent with what he believes to be appropriate? Even if legally it's the best path, will the client approve it? So if a judge has indicated that we have to tamp down the rhetoric mm-hmm. and be careful what you say and he doesn't listen to that, and you as a, an attorney will speak to your client and advise certain things and he doesn't listen to that, I mean, what is he going to listen to? So I think it's going to be problematic for the lawyers as they move forward and strategizing being a team, we are one, right. to, <laughs> to really let their... Their boss, right, the actual client, uh, give his blessing to how they proceed. I get it. Case. But in
1: terms of the judge, a judge, despite what his daughter does, can be unbiased. I think
12: yeah, the legal question, absolutely. The fact of the matter is, is that what your daughter does, what your son does, what your wife does, you know, should not disqualify you in a, in a general sense with respect to whether you could be fair, biased, unbiased or impartial.
1: Yeah, I mean, Don Jr. has to know that by putting his daughter's, this judge's daughter's photo out on social media, that it's reckless at best.
11: Absolutely. Just like Trump knows, putting a picture of Alvin Bragg with a baseball bat next to him is also going to incite something. So, you know, this is obviously a blatant strategy that Republicans have adopted, and we're seeing more and more jump on this bandwagon.
1: As we've been talking about, it's not just the New York case. Donald Trump is facing the very real possibility of charges in Georgia. And he got some unwelcome news today about the January 6th grand jury investigation. So we're going to talk about all that next. Donald Trump's arrest and arraignment in New York City today is only part of his legal trouble. The special counsel is still investigating January 6th and those classified documents. And prosecutors in Fulton County, Georgia, are still considering charges. Let's get a status report on all this with my panel. Okay, so today, the appeals court ruled that some of Donald Trump's closest advisors, including Mark Meadows, former chief of staff, will have to testify before the grand jury looking at January 6th. Doug, um, how this sounds important. This sounds crucial.
10: It is. The esteemed counselor knows better than I that when you try and go up that ladder, you try and go as wide as you can to encircle. And the name that always comes up is Mark Meadows. He's going to have to testify here, probably in other cases as well. And one thing you'll hear from folks who worked in the um, Trump White House is this isn't the Mark Meadows that I knew. Well, I can tell you, I, had, I was at dinner at the same table as Mark Meadows the day before he was sworn in as a member of Congress. This is precisely the Mark Meadows that he's always been. This is no surprise.
1: But meaning what? Like describe that, those characteristics. What was he, the, the Mark Meadows you've always
10: known? He, he's the guy who, as John Boehner very well described in his book, after he committed a, a cardinal sin in opposing the speaker on something got down in a private meeting on his knees and begged for forgiveness he's tough and full of bravado in public in private not at all
1: interesting okay so how significant is this story
12: Very. Uh, You know, why? Because it comes down to information, right? When you have a grand jury, a grand jury we know is not a trial jury, right? You just need a simple majority to vote out an indictment, but it's very significant. That's our process. And in order for the grand jury to do that, yes, they get documents. Yes, they get text messages. Yes, they get all kind of other data. But they also get people to speak with them, Allison. And so to the extent that you're not successful at blocking those people and speaking with them, they're going to have to go before the grand jury and speak about what they know with respect to this investigation and in the event that they were around Mr. Trump which they were in the event that they have special knowledge or information as a result of their company with Mr. Trump they need to share that and if that amounts to what the grand jury perceives to be a crime that represents something else we saw today it's called an indictment and that would could be very troubling and problematic so it's big news
1: Um, Instead, we had Nick Ackerman on last hour, former Watergate attorney, and he made some bold predictions here. He was basically saying that the Georgia um, prosecutors will be moving this month. Yeah. They will be making a decision. Um, they could be presenting charges this month. So what's the latest reporting on this? I
6: mean, I I think that his timeline he laid out is also the same as what I heard. And to, to that point, it's also the same thing that Trump supporters outside the courthouse today were saying. They were saying that they expect this just to be the first uh, of certainly Georgia coming next, maybe uh, another indictment after that. And they really see today as a turning point uh, of what they think is an increased uh, weaponization and victimhood on Donald Trump. Now, at the same point there, we should be honest about the very real legal question at the core here, which has put Trump increasingly out of favor with the majority of Americans. Is, we should note that the majority of the Americans... Do you think he has committed serious, uh, uh, you know, committed serious errors? Do you think that he has disrespected the rule of law and such? It is only that kind of short term of uh, Republican primary folks who have really been able to really give him some support. But I think that is my, something that might change as we see these indictments increase in Georgia but and other places. But do
1: you really think they're going to draw a distinction between, well, I didn't believe the Stormy Daniels thing, but I do believe the Georgia thing. Do you think that they're operating at that level or they just think that the deep state has come for Donald Trump and it's all a political? persecution?
6: I think it's more of the lather, specifically with when we talk about the Republican electorate. And that's why I do disagree with some folks and think that the order does matter, that in putting this New York case first, which has a different kind of question, which has a different type of political value, that the narrative around this switches, particularly when people are not looking at the specific facts of the case. So I definitely think that for the majority of people, they are not making distinctions between those cases. But The increased pressure on Donald Trump, the increased way people talk about the legal pressure he's under will affect kind of downstream. But for most people, it is a it is a just a a combination of uh, of attacks.
12: That cheese face. But it may not be first, the Mm -hmm. New York case. And let me say why. New York, we move a little slower than a lot of jurisdictions. We really do. There's a lot of people here. The dockets are really cluttered. You get longer adjournments. Think about what we're talking about. Going back to court in December on that case. In the interim period, a lot is going to happen. Like what? Mm -hmm. Like we have the federal grand jury convening. We just spoke about that to the issue of January 6th, to the issue of Mar-a-Lago. We have something happening happening in Georgia. Uh, which seemingly preceded this. T- right? 2021, there was this investigation that was underway. And so while the New York indictment dropped first, that would not be to suggest that some of these other things may catch up and surpass mm-hmm. based on scheduling how things ultimately play out.
1: That's interesting because we did hear a little bit about the schedule and that the trial for this one today where, that he was arraigned for wouldn't be for more than a year. I mean, right in the heart of election season.
11: Yeah, you know, I think zooming out here, what Alvin Bragg did today is so clever, because it's not just anymore in the Stormy Daniels bucket. These cases are more related. I think the thread is a consistent effort to undermine our Democratic electoral process. In Manhattan, now we have a cheating scheme, an election cheating scheme. In Georgia, election interference. And Jan 6, sort of election denial and an attempted coup. So these cases are now sort of all in the same space. And I think as more and more comes out, it's going to reinforce each narrative so that was important
1: okay thank you all very much uh listen to this tennessee republicans are moving to expel three democratic state lawmakers for staging a protest calling for gun safety in the wake of mass shootings at that nashville elementary school two of those lawmakers who are being threatened with expulsion are going to join us next Tonight, the Nashville City Council paying tribute to police and the six victims of last week's school shooting. Last week, three Tennessee Democratic lawmakers staged a protest to fight for more gun safety. Well, now Tennessee Republicans are trying to expel those Democrats from their state legislature for participating in that protest. A vote on whether to expel the three Democrats is set for Thursday. Joining me now are two of them, Tennessee State Representative Gloria Johnson and Justin Pearson. Uh, Representatives, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, Representative Johnson, why did you do that on the, um, you know, the legislature floor knowing that that broke the
15: rules? Well, because I I taught school for 27 years. I taught in Colorado just after the Columbine shooting at a school where several of the kids who couldn't go back in the building at Columbine came to Dakota Ridge. I taught at Central High School in Knoxville. We had a school shooting. We lost a student that day. I was there when the kids came running down the hill to my classroom screaming, screaming, crying, terrified, not even able to articulate what had happened before they ran to look for safety in my classroom. I'll never forget the look on those faces. And I will stand up whenever I need to, to fight against gun violence.
1: Um, Representative Pearson, here's the Constitution, your state Constitution, that says you cannot do something like that. Article 2, Section 12 of the Tennessee Constitution provides that each House may determine the rules of its proceedings, punish its members for disorderly behavior, and with the concurrence of two-thirds, expel a member. So, so when you took to the floor of the legislature, did you know you were risking expulsion?
14: No. I had no idea that what we were doing was going to risk expulsion in any way, shape, or form. Myself, nor Representative Johnson... No, Representative Jones. What we did know was that we needed to listen to the thousands of voices of Tennesseans who want to see action on gun control, who want to see the end of the epidemic of gun violence. We're tired of going to funerals. We're tired of having children, having teachers, having parents, having grandparents and loved ones die from gun violence when we know as a state we can do something to prevent it. Because as a state, we have passed laws like permitless carry. We have laws uh, that are in the works about lowering the age to carry a weapon that are making our state less safe. And we need to do everything that we can to lift up the voices and the people who are asking for us to do something in this moment for change.
1: I mean, obviously, so many people in your state and around the country would support your intentions. People want gun violence to stop. But what your Republican colleagues say is that Well, I'll read it to you. Representative Johnson and her colleagues shouted, pounded on the podium, led chants with citizens in the gallery, generally engaged in disorderly and disruptive conduct, including refusing to leave the well, sitting on the podium, utilizing a sign displaying a political message. Representative Pearson and Representative Jones used a bullhorn to amplify their protestations. And so given that it's broken the rule, um, Representative Johnson, what's your recourse? Well, I mean, they it sounds like they are going to vote to expel you?
15: Well, you know, that's up to them. Uh, We broke a rule. We spoke without permission. You know, you can read all of those things, but let me tell you what actually happened. What actually happened was we had been silenced that morning and not able to speak uh, to the issue of the protesters, what their concerns were. We had listened to them. We had talked to them. They cried with us. And um, our colleagues walked in and wouldn't even look them in the eye. We did not get to address a, a chance to address, to welcome them and honor them and talk about their issue. And so what the reality is, we walked out on the floor between bills to speak, to acknowledge them and acknowledge their issue. And when we walked out to speak on the microphone, the speaker cut the microphone. That was less than 20 minutes in, and the speaker called for a recess. So everything that happened after that was during a recess.
1: That's good to know, that's good context. We have some still photos that we're showing right now of what's happening, you say, during the recess. So Representative Pearson, what's your plan?
14: We have to continue to elevate this issue. The reality is we are not being expelled because we broke a rule of house decorum. Uh, we, We broke no criminal law. The reality is the last two members in modern history who were expelled was because they committed 22 uh, sexual assault offenses and they had committed bribery. Uh, actions that are unconscionable uh, for a member of the state legislature to do. What we did was speak up against the NRA. What we did was speak up for the thousands of people in our district who want to see an end to gun violence and the, the proliferation of weapons that are happening in our communities. What we did was speak up for the six people who died at the Covenant School mass shooting in Nashville and the reprimand, the punishment, the expulsion that the Tennessee Republican Party are pushing forward in an effort to expel us is only an attempt to silence us and to silence the thousands of people in Tennessee who want to see common sense gun legislation like red flag laws and the like.
1: Representatives Johnson and Pearson will be watching what happens this week. Thank you so much for your time and taking the time to give us your perspective.
14: Thank you so much. We'll keep fighting.
1: So if protests are not working to stop school shootings and gun violence, what actually does work? Our panel has some ideas next. So you just heard those those two Democratic state reps in Tennessee. They might be expelled, along with a colleague from their legislature, for demonstrating for gun safety on the House floor. If protesting is not the answer to stopping gun violence, what is? My panel is back now. Okay. so as you all know, for um, historically, gun manufacturers cannot be sued. They have some sort of special immunity and protection. But that is changing a little bit. Kaivon, tell us about that.
11: Absolutely. So there is this federal law, PLACA, that does prevent us from suing the gun industry to hold them accountable the same way big tobacco was held accountable and now the opioid industry. But some states like New York and others have passed new laws to try to circumvent PLACA and create these additional pathways towards accountability.
1: And the Sandy Hook parents found a loophole after that hideous shooting, and they were able to sue Remington successfully.
11: Yeah. So I think the idea behind much of this litigation is to sue suppliers, manufacturers and distributors to go after as many members of the industry as possible.
1: Joey, I just feel like, look, every week we have a conversation here because there's some horrible mass shooting or school shooting. We talk about what's the solution, what's the solution. We haven't been able to count on Capitol Hill, as we know, to do anything. And so hit them where it hurts in the pocketbook. And it seems like if protesting isn't the answer <clears throat> and Capitol Hill isn't going to help, maybe it is lawsuits.
12: You know, I I think it is because of the fact that, as you mentioned, lawsuits hit you where it hurts. Right. It's about economic and it's about the economics of it. So when you hit people there, it's very telling, you know, but it's it's crazy, Alison, because it's like it's almost like people are desensitized to this. Every day you're turning on a TV and you're seeing something happening, which is awful. And then it's just, okay, it happens again and again. And then you interview members of Congress, right? And they say, well, nothing to see here. We've done as much as we can do. We've gone as much as we can go. So I think maybe we do look to, right, circumvent these laws that give immunities to these gun manufacturers such that we can get to the heart of the matter. I get weapons, I get guns, but do you really need these you know massive it's crazy weapons of war it's 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 obnoxious
1: there's another way to skin this cat and that is to sue the um school district Mm -hmm. and so the teacher who was shot recently in january by a six-year-old who brought a gun to school is suing the school district i mean a school district doesn't have as much money as a gun manufacturer but maybe this is just the wave of the future of how to do it
10: and we know that the that the school knew that there was a problem with that with that specific student. And so often you talk about the conversations we have every time there's a shooting. The problem is, Allison, the conversation is always the same. We need to ban assault weapons. We can't do anything. So people aren't talking to each other. It's not a conversation. They're talking at each other. And I actually think we can find a good good example in Tennessee, regardless of what we've seen with the speaker. And they, they violated the rules. They should be punished. The punishment shouldn't necessarily include expulsion. doesn't need to. Censure them. Move on. Meanwhile, former governors uh, Bredesen and Haslam in Tennessee, they write op-eds together about what are common-sense solutions that Republicans and Democrats can talk about. They do podcasts together. Tennessee is an example of what's right in our politics and what's wrong in it. We should look at what's right. Mm.
4: Really yeah.
1: interesting. I said.
6: Yeah, I mean, I think that this is all interesting, but I think it all pre- uh, it supposes a political point, which is for a lot of these states— the reason there is folks are turning to the legal question is because the political process is broken. And part a lot of that reason is because the state legislatures are hyper gerrymandered. And so the lawmakers in those states are insulated from responding to public opinion in places like Tennessee in places like Wisconsin in places where we see the, the these these issues really pop up. The protests cannot have the same level of impact because the lawmakers and decision makers have already written maps that have insulated them from having to care about a lot of those people. And so when we think about what goes, what has to happen going forward, we also just can't take as a fact the fact that we have maps, particularly in state legislatures, that allow these lawmakers to not even hear public Their opinion. And so I and so I think that's totally the reason why we see these lawsuits becoming the avenue of choice for so many of these folks is because if you're looking politically, it is a dead end.
1: Absolutely, and I, as Doug was saying, every time one of these things happens, we have a circular conversation mm-hmm. about what do we do, what do we do. Now's not the time to talk about what to do. We're still grieving the, you know, victims, and then
12: another story then, happens. Another story happens. Right. We so never, have never have time. Have, we right. never That's have right. time
1: for the problem solving if you go by that rule of thumb. And so I just find it interesting that people don't want to feel helpless and hopeless anymore, and so they're trying different avenues. Mm
11: -hmm. Yeah, I think one step that is so important and really tangible, especially if you're a law student right now, is we are going to pursue this industry accountability avenue, but there actually aren't enough gun violence prevention litigators. There's not a supply of those people that can bring those cases. And we haven't seen law schools, I'm a recent law school graduate, they don't have a clinic on gun violence prevention, which is a huge problem when you consider that this is an issue that Gen Z, now of law school age, is super passionate about and so we need to give them the resources to lead, them, lead this change that they have absolutely been leading for past years. Let them learn, you know, the tools. There's a whole bunch of tools that you can learn um, to, to, to hold this industry to account. But where so. have we gone as a society where we start <coughs> expelling people yep. because
12: they want to exercise their right to protest? It's not, I mean, censure, right, Doug? That mm-hmm. would be nice to censure them. No, nope, no. Nope. you got to leave this legislature now because you're protesting. That's ridiculous. To
6: that point in the Wisconsin election that just happened, the Republicans have pre-promised to to look at uh, expelling and impeaching the Democrat who was just just elected. This is a level of insulation that these lawmakers have to act with impunity, irrespective of public opinion.
1: And I was just, as you heard me, pointing out to them, at the national level, we hear from Republican leaders like Kevin McCarthy, it's the voters' will. We can't do anything about spelling a problematic, you know, right. member like George Santos because it's the it would be against what the voters have to say. But obviously, at the state level, they don't feel that same way. They'll
6: pick and choose when, it's, when it matches their political purposes.
1: Uh, panel, thank you very much. Great to have you all here thank tonight. You. Really appreciate it. All right, keep it right here on CNN. The indictment coverage continues tomorrow on CNN This Morning. That begins at 5 a.m. Eastern. The team will have new insight from Inside Trump World, plus... The reporter whose Pulitzer Prize-winning work helped trigger the investigation is going to join them live. Thanks so much for watching, everyone. Our coverage continues.